Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, I'll talk with artist Akwi Inji about her latest project. It's called Correspondence, and it explores the power of letter writing. But first, Sandy Moffat is an emeritus professor of theater at Grinnell College. He decided to do something new in his retirement years. He wrote a novel. It's a murder mystery and a political satire that explores some well-trod territory in our state. Controversy over the environmental impact of confined animal feeding operations, and corporate agriculture. It's called The Ghost of Craven Snugs, and it is published by Ice Cube Press. Sandy Moffat is here with me today. Hello, Sandy. Hi, Charity. Thank you so much for being here. And tell me, what inspired you to, to take up novel writing in retirement? Well, uh, my wife is a writer, a better writer than I am. And uh, when I retired... I just started doing things I wanted to do, and one of them was writing. Uh, I had no idea I would write a novel. I was writing short stories and some essays and so forth. Uh, But then when the pandemic came along and we had a lot of time inside the house, I said, I wonder if I can write a novel. And so that was the beginning of it, just I wonder if I can write a novel. And what was the inspiration for this novel? It's hard to say. I mean, they were kind of parallel things. Uh, I, they say write about what you know. Well, I know, <clears throat> excuse me, about Iowa, and uh, so I, I wanted to write something about Iowa. Uh, I've been concerned about uh, the effects of corporate agriculture for a long time, uh, and it just began to evolve as something that I could write that would be funny and maybe interesting but also might have something serious to say. So you are, are not an Iowan by birth. You came to Iowa in 1971 from North Carolina. Um, Iowa is a state that, of course, doesn't get a whole lot of credit for natural beauty. I think those of us who spend a lot of time here know better. But it took a little while for the state to grow on you, didn't it? It did. It did. We uh uh, I was looking for a job. I, the job I had at that time was was kind of going south, and and a friend of mine called and said, "There's this little college in, in Iowa, and, and uh, you know you might like it." And so I applied, and I got the job. And we came here. That drive from Cedar Rapids to Grinnell on Highway Six in March is not a very pretty. A little sight. bit bleak, yeah. And uh, so we kind of looked at each other and said, "One year, one year. Then we're going back to North Carolina." And it took about one year for me to fall in love with, with the landscape. What, what was that process like? What helped you along? What made you fall in love with it? Well, we, we moved into the country right away. We had lived in the country in North Carolina on an old farm, and we, we bought an old abandoned farmhouse, and we moved into that. And just the, the immediate surroundings, uh, all of the little little waterways and fence rows and small woodlots and things like that. It was just, just, just caught me. And I've, I've been an out, outdoors person uh, since I was a kid. And uh, being able to go out, walk out the door and go a quarter of a mile and be able to hunt pheasants and that kind of thing, it was just, it was kind of like, this, this is it. This is what I, where I want to be. But it is a subtle landscape. It is, it is very subtle. <laughs> 
It takes a while. And you've got to dig deep. You can't, you can't drive down. I mean, you obviously can't drive down I-80 and see it all. Right. You have to get into it and you have to dig. But, but Although there, there are some <clears throat> breathtaking views when you're driving on I-80, particularly in the fall, I will say. Yes, there but, are. <laughs> <laughs> so as you fell in love with this land, um, you know, that was the, the 1970s into the 1980s. So although farming wasn't really a part of your life, you're living in the country, so you're surrounded by farmers. Correct. So you were here through the farm crisis and, and really through the transition. What was that like? Well, you know, there, there were small farms. Uh, families lived on them. Uh, <clears throat> they grew everything they could grow. They always had some chickens in the yard and, and, and a lot of times just a little lot with, with a few cows and, and, uh, and hogs. And I, I saw little by little as these farms went under, uh, there was a time that the, we, we live about two miles, two and a half miles from the city of Grinnell. And there was a time when I could, I, there, were, there were, I can't remember, five or six abandoned farmhouses on that, on that road. Uh, we lived in one of them. And these people who gave up the farm and or had to give up the farm. And uh, it, it touched me. This novel is, as I mentioned, it's a murder mystery. It's a political satire. Um, and, and you really do take aim at corporate agriculture and confined animal feeding operations and meatpacking plants and, and some of the things that you see as, as really wrong with modern agriculture in Iowa. <clears throat> you also write about... Um, people involved in agriculture in Iowa with a lot of sympathy. Was that important to you? Because, I mean, this is funny. It's a funny book. And and there are characters, there are villains in this book that you give no respect to <laughs> whatsoever. You don't build empathy with, with the villains. But was it important to you to make sure that you were portraying Iowans on multiple sides of this divide with empathy and with sympathy, you know, as I uh, as I got into the book, I realized that uh, I had a, a treasure trove of experience to write from in this in in this area. Uh, I was on the Powhatan County Board of Supervisors for six years, and and I saw the pain and the frustration that uh, that ordinary citizens living in tiny towns or out in the country had as a result of, of these changes and how much it hurt. I mean, very, very real hurt that these people were going through and the kind of uh, lack of feeling, arrogance on the other side. And so I'm not, I'm, I, I, I don't mean to say that it's a, a, a clear divide. I mean, there's some, there's some wonderful people who are, who are running big farms and doing it well doing it the right way, <clears throat> and paying attention to. I mean, during this time, there were people who wanted to build a hog lot, and they listened to the people who, who came to meetings and changed their minds, decided not to do it. But uh, that, that, that experience gave me stuff to write about in this book. And we know that in Iowa, if there are people who live near land where somebody wants to build a CAFO or a confined animal feeding operation, they have very little 
recourse. That's correct. That's something you've experienced. Yeah. Is is trying yeah. to fight that? Yeah, as a as a supervisor and as a, a member of that community, those communities, I, I tried to fight that. But but there was, it it was, it didn't work. <laughs> well, and and the laws are in place to that's right to make sure that it. It doesn't work. Absolutely. It doesn't work every time, for sure. Were there recent uh, inspirations? I mean, we're, we're kind of going back in time thinking about um, the, the transition that a lot of us lived through in the 1980s. But did you have uh, recent inspirations that made you think, oh, I want, I want to write this now? Yeah, well, it, well, it, it kind of goes way beyond the, the, the 1980s or way after the 1980s. I mean, I was on the board in the early 2000s. And that brings it up that much. And that was after the so-called farm crisis. But the individual crises were over. And uh, <clears throat> then I'm, I'm, I must say that once I got started writing these, this book, these, these, these characters uh, told me what to do <laughs> and what to say. They took off on their own. And, and uh, it was just a, a pleasure to, to write them. What writers give you inspiration or gave you inspiration specifically for this? When I was reading this, I, I found echoes of Carl Hyacin, who, of course, writes books that, that take place almost entirely in Florida. But uh, is he an inspiration for you? Carl Hyacin is my hero. <laughs> he really is. In fact, uh, one of the things that, that, that I can say is that we, we had a kind of a little Carl Hyacin club years and years ago. And I remember all of us deciding that Iowa needed a Carl Heisen, and and one didn't come along. So I said, well, you know, I'm not going to be a Carl Heisen, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> and then there are the other writers that you you think about. Wendell Berry is another one of my heroes. Uh, and then people like uh, Aldo Leopold. And There's a little Edward Abbey in here as well, uh, Edward I Abbey would say. As well, yeah. <laughs> he was always on the edge. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And you, you're definitely on the edge. Were you, in in writing this, I can tell that you had an enormous amount of fun, but were you worried that you might go too far? My wife was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> tell me about those conversations. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, I was not worried. I was not worried. It's, it's, a, it's a novel. It's a work of fiction. And if people see themselves in it, it's their problem. It's not mine. <laughs> Well, they could see themselves as heroes as well. Yeah, you do have right. you do have a cast of characters that so, that would be described. It, as it is a work well. of fiction, and uh, there's a there's a woman uh, in the, toward the end of the book, Marilyn Jacobson, who I have met Marilyn Jacobsons, many of them, and she's a she's an older farmer yeah. who has stayed on her land. And yeah, well, is, she had, yeah. I mean, I won't go into the whole thing right. about her, but she is a woman who. Who lives in the house that her grand, great grandfather and great great grandfather lived in, and she's gonna she's gonna lie down in front of bulldozers before she's gonna let them ruin her life. And yet she's a woman who found that she didn't have a lot of power, even that's if right. she was out there lying down in front of bulldozers. That's, that's correct. So in in saying <clears throat> that you've you've met people like her, were there? I, I'm. It's a work of fiction, but. Were there real-life inspirations for a lot of the characters? Well, I, I don't think you can avoid real-life inspirations. Uh, was she uh, – did I, did I sit down and write her? No. But uh, there were, there were you know, echoes of many real-life inspirations, just like there are for the villains. 
Uh, there's no one person that I'm writing up as one of these villains. Uh, they, they're made up. Yeah. Well, we will. Uh, you're going to read a little bit for us when we get back, but we're going to take a short break. I am talking to Sandy Moffat. We're talking about his novel, his very first novel. It's called The Ghost of Craven Snugs, a Midwestern murder mystery. And it uh, explores some well-trod territory in the state of Iowa, controversy over the environmental impact of confined animal feeding operations and corporate agriculture. It is published by Ice Cube Press. Coming up in about 20 minutes, I will talk with artist Akwi Inji. Her latest project is called Correspondence. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in about 15 minutes, I will talk with artist Akwi Inji about her latest project. It's called Correspondence, and it explores the power of written letters and the power of writing those letters as well. With me right now is Sandy Moffat. He is an emeritus professor of theater at Grinnell College, and he has just published his first novel, trying something new in retirement. The novel is called The Ghost of Craven Snugs, a Midwestern murder mystery published by Ice Cube Press. And uh, Sandy, I think it would be great if you would just read us a little bit from the beginning of the novel. Okay. This is the opening scene. It was the biggest fire in Nachiwinga County since the great autumn and spring prairie fires of 100 years earlier. That was before the prairies had been plowed under and replaced by endless rows of corn and soybeans stretching from river to river, smothering all of central Iowa that wasn't paved or untillable. Pickup trucks and cars filled with gawkers lined the gravel road for nearly a mile on each side of the driveway leading to the burning farmhouse and outbuildings. Clumps of orange and blue flame fled straight skyward, and the rising smoke and graying cumulus clouds Blocking the sun turned the landscape below an eerie green. The county fire truck, along with several from neighboring counties, unable to get within 100 yards of the house because of the heat, had resorted to spraying adjacent fields and hedgerows, hoping to stop the blaze from spreading. Volunteer vehicles of all sorts, flashing lights attached to the roofs, were parked in adjoining fields, lending a red glow to the blowing grass. Even the high school show-offs and town bullies trying to look brave and tough couldn't get closer. The hissing of the flames, shouts of the firemen, and the yelling of the onlookers gave the whole scene a feeling of apocalypse. When a small dark man stepped through the wall of smoke onto the curling grass between the burning house and the crowd, voices dropped to a whispered murmur, then stopped. Wrinkled and thin, he was wrapped in an oilskin tarp with an old felt hat pulled down to his ears and a five-gallon bucket in his hand. He glared from one side of the silent crowd to the other, then hurled the bucket at them. Stay away, all of you. Stay away. 
His shrill voice cut through the gloom like a siren. He straightened his wiry body and raised his arms like some Moses on a mountain. There ain't nothing here for you to look at. There ain't nothing you can do. There ain't going to be nothing left for you when it's done. I told you over and over this was going to happen, but there was too many, too much money out there for you to listen around. But I'm saying again, you ain't going to see any of it. You ain't going to get enough to keep your tractors running, let alone what you need to pay off what you owe on all your little farms. And then promised jobs ain't going to be worth signing up for. You people better wake up. Your beautiful county, your little towns, your old home places, every one of them is in more trouble than you can imagine. And I can tell you one more thing. You ain't seen the last of me. He looked as if he was going to continue, but an outburst from the spectators stopped him and the, t and the tall brick chimney collapsed into the house roof. The fire, as if it had been holding back for this chance, arced out of the crumbling house like a flaming rainbow onto the only unburnt building that remained, the old-fashioned hip-roofed wooden barn that exploded into flames like it had been waiting to be lit. When a horse screamed, the old man turned, threw off his tarp, and sprinted to the barn. He paused for no more than a second, flung the door open, and stepped into the blaze. As the door opened, four horned goats shot out and ran into the crowd, scattering frightened people in all directions. The ghosts were followed by two huge Clydesdale. Moving side by side like they were in harness, they trotted down the driveway. Finally, a tall, gated horse stepped out, head high, lifting its hoofs as if it was entering a show ring. It broke into a fast gate and raced through a lane formed by the onlookers. All eyes turned back to the blaze when the barn imploded, roaring and releasing a twisting hundred-foot ash demon into the sky. For ten minutes there was no sound but the cracking of the fire and the crash of fallen timbers. An old man and his wife, likely farmers, walked toward their truck. Let's go, Merle. I can't stand to see no more. There's nothing we can do, the woman said. They're not going to be able to to get in that barn for the next two, three hours, she took his hand. You don't reckon Craven could have got out somehow, do you? Don't think so. You saw that whole roof fell in on him, he said. How do you think it got started? That fire wasn't no accident, I can tell you that. Can't tell you who struck the match. Most of us around here know them who were behind it, though. Nobody come out and say it. What With that kind of money them big boys are throwing around, any of them yahoos up there showing off would have been happy to spill some gas on the back porch and light it, trying to suck up, make them feel like somebody. He was a good man, Craven Snug, she said. Did a lot of good things around here. Maybe what he was fighting so hard against is just what's going to happen. Nothing any of us little folks can do about it. I know Sheriff Townsend ain't going to do nothing about it. The big boys got him in their pockets, just like all them other politicians, licking their boots. The old man shook his head. Everybody else, hoping they'll get the feed out of the trough. They walked on silent for a while, not wanting to look back. Did you see that big flock of crows come out of that plume of ashes when the barn caved in? The old man said. Must have been 50 of them. Kept going straight up till I couldn't see them no more. 
And why don't why don't we stop there, Sandy? But that's just a little bit of the ghost of Craven Snugs, a Midwestern murder mystery. And that's uh, how we meet Craven Snugs, who says that we haven't seen the last of him, although his ashes are never even recovered from that burning barn. But he does he does show up later on. Um, but we don't see him. No, we don't. <laughs> we don't see him. Uh, <clears throat> Tell me about your inspiration for Craven Snugs. I mean, you you were talking earlier about knowing people like some of the people in your book. Did you know somebody like Craven Snugs? Well, you know, there 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 are people around like that. Uh, <laughs> yes, many many people. Uh, anyone who looks just like him? No, not really. <laughs> uh, but a lot of people who think like him, uh, feel like him. And I have to tell you, the name I saw the name. Years and years and years ago on a mailbox in North Carolina. Oh, yeah. So and you've been saving thought, that coolest one, huh? Name, <laughs> coolest name I've ever seen. So, <laughs> so you had that one in your pocket That's for decades. Right. Huh? Well, so there are actually, if I'm counting correctly, there are at least six murders in this book um, because uh, I, it's implied that Craven Snug's death is a murder. Um, the people behind his death mysteriously die, although that's that's just thought about in memory, uh-huh. not uh, not actually something that we see in the action. And then there are these three CEOs who are involved in corporate agriculture, and they're all involved in different parts of it. They're friends, uh, or at least they're their colleagues and uh, interact with each other. They're all incredibly wealthy and enjoying the prosperous life that that they've been able to build through all of these operations. They don't. Only one of them lives in Iowa. So these are people who are prospering from these businesses in Iowa, even though they're not part of these communities. They're not part of the state. They don't live here. They don't connect with the land or with the people. And uh, each one of these individuals does turn up missing. And that, that's really that's really where the action begins. And and as I mentioned, I mean, there for people who read Carl Hyacin novels, these are the kinds of characters that you would recognize from from those novels as well. People who are making a whole lot of money from some pretty shady business practices. You then bring their three widows together. So these are the women who have survived these men, and none of them were in happy marriages. None of them are sad that their husbands are dead. When they come together, though, the three of them start to really have a better understanding of of the lives that their husbands were living and the damage that their husbands were doing through their work. Tell me about your idea for for really looking at this work through the eyes of these three women. Well, I think that's probably the best example of characters taking off. Uh, I, I, I thought of those three women at first just as a way to illustrate the life of the men, that here were these men who had these uh, trophy wives that— None of them even had any kind of husband-wife relationship anymore, but they had them just so they could show them off and that kind of thing. And the wives were perfectly happy with that. They had everything they had dreamed. All of them came from from circumstances that weren't that good. And so when they got into the situation of having all the money they wanted to spend and so forth, that was okay with them. 
And it was when their husbands died and they were faced with the fact that they were now in charge that they began to think about it all and decide. Now, none of them really want to give up everything. <laughs> They're having too much fun. But they, but they want to do it right. And uh, so th these characters really came from just, they were just going to be kind of figureheads. But then they took on lives of their own. And I, I just had a really good time with them. Were you surprised in the writing process when that started to happen? When, when maybe yeah. your, your story kind of came to life in a new way? Yeah, yeah. And, and some of the scenes, uh, the, the scene when they, when they land at the airport in their private jet, that's one of my favorite scenes in the whole book. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, and so there's also, um, you know, we've got the villains in this story. We have the, the wives of the villains in this story who um, give us an opportunity to, to kind of see these businesses that their, their husbands are running in a new way. And then you've got your, your cast of local Iowa characters, and I would say your heroes. Um, and and one, of, one of the places that we spend a lot of time is in a really underfunded sheriff's office. Tell me a little bit about what you uh, wanted to convey about the local sheriff and and how things were running there. Well, you know, I, I think to me, uh, <clears throat> I don't know a whole lot of local sheriffs, but I know the sheriffs that we had in Powhatan County, and uh, they're good guys. They're guys out there who are underpaid and and overworked, uh, but they love their job, and it seems to me that they all that these are these kind of epitomize the really you know. Really good Iowa folks, uh, and working in the courthouse, I met a lot of them. Uh, the you know the auditor, the uh, county attorney, all of these people were just great people who were doing, doing their work, in a non-political way. Uh, and I'm not sure that's the case anymore. This is this is 23 years ago, uh, but but politics wasn't important to them. They were just doing their work. They they all had jobs to do, and they took them seriously. And uh, you know, some of them were better than others at it. And it, it. It was a shame that these people had to even run for office. So that's where that inspiration yeah. came from. I just want to show show these people. The, the uh, uh, Palisade County has a new jail and a new sheriff's office now. They, but the one they used to have is pretty much like the one I described. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty, and that's the one they had when, I was, when yeah. I was on the board, yeah. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that, that I really enjoyed about the novel is that, you know, it there's there are really two sides to what is going on here. And yet the people who are, are sort of in your cast of heroes are not a monolith. They are not all the same. They don't all think the same. They come from different socioeconomic levels. And... They come together because they love the land in Iowa and because they want to make sure that people um, who are not guilty don't get framed for mm -hmm. these murders. But this this group of people kind of crosses a lot of the urban, rural and political divide that feels so deep in Iowa right now. Was that something else that you wanted to do is is to demonstrate that people from different backgrounds and in different 
parts of life and different socioeconomic circumstances can actually work together? I really did. And uh, the the two truck drivers uh, are, are are two guys that I really like. You know, I, I know I know those guys, not specifically, right. but I know those guys. And I know and how, good they, guys. how they feel. They're good guys. They're doing a job. They, they don't have the best lives, and they don't make the best choices in their lives. But they're, but they're good guys, and they're out there, uh, uh, and they appreciate what they see. The one guy who talks about the, the way the stream used to be when he was in high school and cut classes to go down and sit on the bank and yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, so, yes, I, I, did, I did want it, want a variety of those people in there. And this is this is something I'm working on in my in in what I'm writing right now. It's Tell me about the uh, the supernatural. We don't you don't have to explain the supernatural element of your novel because that's part of of the mystery and surprise. But there's a lot of supernatural stuff going on <laughs> in your novel, which which is pretty different from some of the uh, the the uh, writers that you were talking about taking a lot of inspiration from earlier. Where did that come from? I often I also take inspiration from Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Ah, <laughs> nice. And and that whole that whole magical realism, and so and the thing the the the, the thing that I love about their work is that they. They don't explain it. It's just there. And uh, and you don't explain so it. Don't it's just there. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like, Sandy, it seems like you're having so much fun with this. I am. Has it, has it fulfilled your expectations of a, of a retirement hobby? Oh, well, it's gone way beyond them. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to uh, Steve Simpkin and the Ice Cube Press and so forth. I mean, I, I enjoyed writing what I was writing. I um, I grieved the, the the loss of the Wops Pentagon Almanac because of of what they published. Yeah, and, Tim Faye did a beautiful job uh, with that. Yep, yeah. and uh, but yes, it, it's it's going beyond my expectations. I never thought this would get this much attention. So you didn't really think it would get published. No. Well, <laughs> I, you know, it's hard to get a novel published. Yeah. I've talked to enough people. Uh, I mean, there are novels sitting on the sh- on the shelves of of. I don't know how many Grinnell professors, and I can't imagine how many Iowa University of Iowa professors, and maybe there's one sitting on your shelf. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for you? Uh, this, this, this book that I'm working on, it, it's different. It, it, I don't think it's going to be quite as – if this book is outrageous, I don't think this one will be quite as outrageous because the, the, the main character is a, is a 12-year-old girl. Uh, but it does, it does look at some – things that I think are bad about the state and that I think we ought to pay attention to. You don't want to tell us anything more than that? Uh, well, I mean, it, 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 it has to do with, as I said, with, with people digging pipelines. It has to do with people uh, 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 killing wildlife just for their horns. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to do, nothing against the hunting. I'm, I'm a hunter myself, but, I, but you know, people who just who go out and poach in public land and, and cut the horns off the deer, and it has to do with them. And uh, well, I'm looking forward. And to this it. girl, this 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 young girl, is uh, severely dyslexic. So okay. Well, Sandy Moffat, good luck with it, and thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you, Charity. It was a pleasure. Sandy Moffat is the author of *The Ghost of Craven Snugs*, a Midwestern murder mystery, published by Ice Cube Press. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Humans have been sending each other written letters for centuries. Written correspondence has been a powerful way to communicate, a powerful way for the writer to explore and express feelings and ideas. And in many cases, written correspondence has helped to capture history in a unique way. But recent technological advancements have led to far fewer letters being written or sent. Artist Aki Inji is hoping to inspire some letter writers with a new project she's calling, appropriately, Correspondence. She has started with a prompt for the people who subscribe to her newsletter, The Kaleidoscopic Life, and the project will culminate in June. The Correspondence Project is funded by the National Arts Council and by the Endowment for the Arts. Akwi, hello. Hi, Charity. It's good to see you. Good to be here. Wonderful to have you here. And... Let's start at the beginning. I mean, this this project is called Correspondence. And in your newsletter, you shared a very vulnerable story about the importance of correspondence in your life and your relationship with your father. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I've, I've thought a lot over the years about the role that written correspondences have had in my life, especially in the context of my relationships. It happens to be really specific to my relationship with my dad. Unfortunately, he passed away July 2021. And when he passed away, he and I hadn't spoken to each other in over 20 years. The, The sort of, I mean... I call them conversations because they felt like conversations. Most of our conversations that we had when I was younger really happened through written correspondences. He lived in Cameroon. I lived here in Iowa. And um, for the first 10 or so years that, that I lived here, after having lived in Cameroon with him, those written correspondences shaped our relationship. And um, when he passed away... And uh, my siblings and I went back to Cameroon for the funeral services. We, we were there for about a month. And one of the things that I really needed to do for myself was to literally lock myself into his office where he had kept decades and decades worth of correspondences between him and his family members. And I poured through all of those pages um, in chronological order, wow. pretty much. And really seeking to better understand him and searching for answers around our relationship, who he was, and if my recollection was as accurate as the letters might indicate. Um, and so that's really the the personal lens through which I'm coming at this story or this this project. So in, in looking at his letters, he had all of the letters that you sent to him. So, uh, interestingly enough, he had the reputation of keeping everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, he kept everything, and everyone would laugh about that, you know, in recollection. And so when I was in his office looking through all of these letters, the two that I was perhaps most interested in discovering were actually not there. So he did not keep the last two correspondences he and I had. So our relationship, we, we really stopped talking um, more than 20 years prior to his, to his passing, as I think I mentioned. And that was through 
correspondences. He wrote a letter to me that was um, lengthy. I, we were both stubborn. We were both really stubborn human beings, strong-willed. And so I wrote a response back, and I needed it to be longer <laughs> and sound louder. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, that was really the last time we spoke. Um, but so I found it interesting that out of these thousands of documents he kept, those two were not there. So you were reading these letters. It sounds like you were looking for your father, looking for a deeper understanding of the man that he was. Did you feel like you found it? I did. I did. And it was really emotionally exhausting um, reading those letters and experiencing. I'm also an empath. And so experiencing all of those emotions in a really compressed amount of time and some of what I was reading affirmed some things, some of what I was reading actually didn't. And so it was in some ways discovering parts of rediscovering parts of him that I had sort of vaguely understood or knew, and then also discovering completely different sides of him that I didn't know. Humanized him in a way differently than my memory did. <laughs> and the relationship between the the written correspondences and that time period when it took so long for these letters to reach the receiver. So the relationship, not only between these written correspondences, but the, in the context of the time passing, because he would receive the letter and then he'd write the receipt date. And so I could tell, I could see on the letter generally when it had been written and Oftentimes, I could also see when it was postmarked, and then I could see when he had received it. And typically, it was about a month and a half wow. between the time that a letter was sent and a letter was received. And so if you turn back around and send a letter right back, you're talking three months have gone by over and over and over again. Suddenly, three months turns into years. Right. You know? Wow. That's fascinating to think about how that would influence what you would communicate and how you would communicate So you, of course, are an artist, and obviously this was a very deep personal experience, but tell me about the inspiration for turning it into the Correspondence Project. Yeah. The power of communication, the power of words has always been important to me, and recognizing that in my mind, there's a difference between the energy associated with written correspondences and spoken words. And so I wanted to explore the relationship between um, written correspondences and the role they play in our in our lives and how that has expanded, how that has evolved over time from using my dad as an example, right? These were handwritten letters, which over time transitioned into type written letters on the typewriter, which transitioned into um, emails before that. I mean, it was computer generated sort of, I don't know, it's just interesting how it all evolved over time. And then how the amount of time between sending and receiving a correspondence has impacted our relationships. So all the way back to ancient Egyptian culture, I'm like doing a bunch of research around the role of written correspondences going that far back to now with social media and direct messages. And when there's a level of expediency that's associated with 
the way we correspond in, in written form now in emails and direct messages and social media, how does that expediency impact the power of those words? Do we think about those words more or less? Are we frivolous with those words in a way that we may not have been in the years when we were writing them down by hand? I think that you and I are members of the last generation that probably has shoeboxes full of written correspondences. And, you know, I certainly remember that transition that I went through. I used to write a lot of letters as a teenager. And, you know, the first love letters of my life were <laughs> were all on paper and transitioning to email, which was a revelation in so many ways. But even then, I could feel like I was losing something. So think about that that experience of writing letters. What do you feel was different about sitting down and writing a letter or even typing a letter but coming back and adding things later? How is that different than what we do now when we send someone we love a message? I wonder about the role of vulnerability and honesty. Which isn't to say that when we send letters or messages now that that it's not with a sense of honesty. I think there's a deeper, more spiritual association with honesty and vulnerability when we're writing a letter by hand that I don't think we necessarily experience when we're using these digital sort of email as an example forms. Um, and I'm still processing through. I mean, this that's part of the project for me is just processing through, coming to some decisions for myself around why that is, answering the question that you just asked through this project. I don't know that I have that answer quite yet, you know, but it's I sense that it that it's a question worth asking and answering through this project. One of the things that I did during the pandemic was I started writing letters to myself. And I had been writing morning pages every day um, for a while. And I transitioned to starting to write letters to myself. I'd mail them. And part of me is like, this is silly. Why would I mail a letter to myself? I can just, you <laughs> Thank know. Thank you for supporting the post. Right. Service, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and but I think there's also there's a there's a ritual associated with putting that letter, folding that letter, putting that letter in an envelope, stamping it, putting it in the mailbox. There's something important, I think, about that rich, ritualistic relationship that we have with letter writing and USPS. Um, <laughs> and Charity, I got to tell you, and this is actually one of the prompts that will be coming up for February, is to write a letter to yourself, mail it, you know. Um, I think people will be shocked if they approach that exercise with a deep sense of honesty. And that's what I... I've chosen to do is when I'm writing to myself, it is my truest voice. It is, (laughs) you know, I mean, I'm very, very honest with myself. And I receive the letter the following day, typically. And you would, you would be shocked. I am generally shocked by how new it feels when I'm reading those words, even though I'd just written them. Oh, gosh, I knew, who, who knew exactly how I was feeling? You know, my gosh, who knew I needed to hear this today? So you, you've started off with a prompt asking people to write a letter to a member of their family. Um, so a child or a parent or a sibling, uh, and to send that letter and to get that done by the end of January. So the clock is ticking. Tell me about the the rest of this project, because it will culminate in June. 
What other forms does it take along the way? Yeah, so these monthly prompts are are part of the community engagement component of the project. And the project really culminates in um, a performance in choreo poetry form. And um, uh, choreo poetry, you've got you to define this. <laughs> it's essentially dance, movement, spoken word, music. Okay. Yes. Um, and so it'll be a performance and an, a studio recorded album of that spoken word with music. And I'm super excited about that. Um, and uh, and then a published a published book of the work. So th- sort of a three pronged finished project that will happen in June, um, culminate in June. And it feels like every single part of this process is important in different ways. And really just wanting people to explore their own relationship with written correspondences and how those written correspondences inform, empower, strengthen, or unravel their own relationships. So you're asking people to do this work on their own. When I write a letter, you're not going to see that letter. So tell me more about your journey of discovery. I mean, you're inspiring a lot of people to take their own journey of discovery. How does that play into what you're doing? Yeah. So eventually, throughout the way, there will be um, requests for people to send in certain letters to me that I would then use in in the project in some specific ways. So there's that coming. Um, and then also I'll eventually be asking people to reflect on their experiences. I, you're right in that right now I don't have any idea who might actually be participating in the prompt component of this, but that's okay. I'm really comfortable with that. Um, but I will be coming back around to, to folks uh, with a basically a survey sort of, you know, opportunity in the end and say, hey, all right, if you've been engaging in any way with what we've been doing, I'd love to hear about it. So there will be that coming too. And you're sharing these prompts through your newsletter. Are you hoping to reach beyond that audience? Tell me about that. Yes. So I have a series of events that um, will be happening throughout the state. Letters in libraries is one. So there will be in-person opportunities for people to engage with correspondence, this project, um, and the letters that are important in their lives, as well as letter writing um, throughout the next five and a half months. I feel like this project, you are trying to keep yourself very open about where it goes. Am I right about that? I mean, it feels it feels like you are are trying to open yourself up to learn something that you may not have that many preconceived notions mm. about where it's all going or or do you? So I know where so the script the 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 performance that script is written okay. so i'm that script is written and i'm working in the studio right now to record the music along with that script so that part um i know where that's going and i'm working with ld kid as dancer and choreographer with the movement component so there's all of that that's transpiring what i always love about the projects that i try to take on is that unknown that comes with inviting the public into the process. Um, and sometimes I don't know what I'm learning as I, until I learn it, you know. Um, even with the script right now, as we continue to revise, informed by the movement, 
I'm I'm tweaking things and editing things a little bit too. Like, I don't know if this answer is the, the you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, there's some questions that I was hoping this project would answer that don't feel answered yet. And I do hope that by the time this thing is on stage in June, some of those <laughs> questions are officially answered, at least for me. Um, but also it's an invitation for the audience to to engage with some of what is being reflected through the work. I'm sure that some people will write to every prompt. Other people will do one or maybe they'll do two. But uh, in in thinking about having the power to inspire someone to sit down and engage with their emotions, their ideas in this way, what do you think about when you think that you may be setting someone else on a really fascinating journey of self-discovery? I literally don't know why else I would create if not for that purpose. Period. <laughs> I think that's awesome. <laughs> well, it's exciting and I can't wait to see where it goes. Aqui, thank you so much. Thank you, Charity. It's been really nice to talk with you about this project. Artist Aqui Inji, we have been talking about her correspondence project. The project will culminate in June, and you can get involved through her Kaleidoscopic Life newsletter. You can sign up through the contact page at aquiinji.com. That is A-K-W-I-N-J-I.com. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.